Hey everyone, welcome to The Water Voice. I'm Greg. And I'm Kevin, and we look forward to talking with you about all things water. And startups. And much more. Let's go. to another episode of The Water Voice. I'm really excited today about this conversation. I want to welcome to the show Augustus DeRico. And uh, Augustus, I don't even want to try. I'll try to give an intro, but I feel like I'm going to sell you way short. So uh, you can cut me off at any time. But uh, Augustus, I would consider an impact entrepreneur, co-founder of Terraseco Solutions, which we'll talk more about, some of the technology you guys have developed and the work you're doing there. But um, I think much more than that, you strike me as uh, a true thought leader when it comes to water and the environment, and so much more than that. Um, so welcome to the show, Augustus. Thanks so much, man. I, uh, I really appreciate getting to talk with uh, other water bros. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that you sold me short there at all. Um, co-founder of Terraseco, interested in all things water. My newsletter is called Water Bro because that's sort of the niche that I'm trying to occupy. That's awesome. I wanted, actually, that's a good jumping off point. Um, you have a sub stack and I've read, um, I think pretty much everything that you've, you've put out and it's, it's thought provoking. Um, and, uh, it's really interesting. So I would encourage everyone and we'll, we'll make sure we'll add show notes to this and, um, cause again, I think those are, are so well, well written, um, what you're talking about, but also, um, you very recently, let's just jump right into it. Very recently you put together a thread on Twitter and it went basically viral, um, as far as I'm concerned. And it had to do with, um, the catastrophe that's happened in East Palestine, Ohio. Can you just outline basically what has happened there. I think most people know unless they've been under a rock, but put it in the context of drinking water and what you were laying out in that, in that thread. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to. Um, so, you know, people have heard about the train derailment. They've heard about the variety of chemicals that were released by it. Right. So the vinyl chloride, um, the phosgene gas, now there's concerns about dioxins. Um, the EPA has gone into the area and done uh, what seems without further inquiry to be extensive testing. Um, what they've tested is the source water for the municipal water utility of East Palestine and then the treated water. So the water that is pumped up um, from the source and then sent through like the municipal water utilities treatment plant. And what they've found is that that water is safe and only contains trace, nominal, um, non-risky levels of these contaminants from the train. Um, what I outlined in the thread was that that actually doesn't mean that we should not be worried. Um, it is either sort of a mistake on the EPA's part to have only put out tests like this um, or uh, evasion of some kind because Obviously, the source water and the treated water is clean since it comes from the aquifer beneath East Palestine, right? So the source water 
isn't going to be contaminated until the surface water, which already is contaminated, percolates down. Yep. Um, and so I've, I've spoken to some uh, hydrology researchers, uh, really smart people, um, a guy named Aaron Mendel. He runs a company called Wacomet, and he did his uh, master's in hydrology a little while back. And we need a lot more modeling to figure out whether it's going to be um, two months or six months or many years until the source water, the groundwater is contaminated, but um, it will be given how slow cleanup efforts are going. Um, yeah. So so I brought that up and then I brought up some solutions uh, to filtration insofar as filtration is concerned for the source water of East Palestine. So um, if the groundwater is contaminated, um, which I suspect it will be, given how slow uh, cleanup is going, um, we need two things. One, decentralized water treatment systems for residences that don't receive their water from the utility, and also uh, treatment filtration at the utility itself for the majority of the town that um, receives their water from the municipal water provider. So what that looks like is really simple, it's really actionable, it's very affordable, uh, which is a concern that everybody has, right? Like nobody wants to spend tons of money on an infrastructure upgrade um, for a random town or a random village in Ohio of all places, right? Um, but I think for less than a million dollars, you can install um, improved granulator activated carbon filtration at the municipal water utility, which will then feed into a reverse osmosis system um, that can distribute water to all of the people that have city water. And then you can do under the sink RO systems for all the people that have a private well that do not use city water. Um, and those are like a thousand dollars a pop if you include insulation and hardware. Um, altogether, probably something on the order of $980,000 to make sure everybody despite the contamination, has clean water. So I've, I've said a lot. Um, we can get into the particulars of that, but that's sort of what the threat is about. That's really amazing. Um, what struck me about it was how everything was so actionable. Like you you laid it out, it was concise. I am not sure, but I'm sure this is something you've looked into is, um, and, and I think you even laid it out in the thread, but um, how, what's the size of some, some of these vinyl groups? Um, like five microns, I, I feel like... Um, I'm going to pull up your thread actually. Yeah, sure. So, um, there, I, be, I believe the term to describe most of the contaminants is, um, polyamides. Okay. Um, so these are relatively stable, um, like plastic monomers. Uh, so the monomer themselves is much smaller than a single mic micron. Um, hence the need for reverse osmosis, even after uh, a granulator, granulated activated carbon filter um but the polymers you know like the large chains of the molecules um they can get up to being large enough that you can see them right so like much much larger than the micron scale is appropriate for using mm -hmm. man that's interesting um what's the re i know what the response has been like on twitter have you has this gotten you in front of or at least a seat at the table with some decision makers or people um that are actually on the ground there that are like you know we we need to move forward with something like this like what type of conversations have come from this yeah yeah sure so 
uh, I got to correspond with the head of the water department of East Palestine. Um, it's one guy that runs the whole operation. Um, and uh, it looks like you need either an executive order at the state or federal level um, to expedite approval of any infrastructure upgrade um, to the municipal utility, which is concerning because if you don't get that expedition, then the EPA has to do a full review process that can take months, um, if not years, right? So insofar as a central infrastructure upgrade is concerned, still trying to move forward with that through different channels. Like um, uh, I'm going to butcher the, the acronyms, so I won't even mention them, but there's a handful of uh, agencies in Ohio that could also accelerate the timeline for a centralized infra upgrade. Um, what I am more bullish on as a solution in the short term is getting everybody in East Palestine and under the sink reverse osmosis system. Um, so I've spoken to a lot of people on the ground there, um, just everyday people that are drinking water, um, <laughs> obviously. And, uh, and I think that what we're going to do is we're going to orchestrate a nonprofit in the next week, um, raise some funds from the startup community and anybody else that's interested in helping, um, and then start shipping these RO systems to a distribution point um, in, in East Palestine. So whether I'm going to be there in person or not um, is TBD, but I think in the next month we can start installing these systems for the, I think there's 1,800 or 1900 households there. Um, and I think that even if we have to spend like $1.2 million to do it, which is about what I'm suspecting it'll cost. Um, you know, I think that that's well worthwhile, um, and well worth my time in, in the next month to make sure that people have clean water, even if the utility can't give them that. That's fucking amazing. Uh, that's walking the talk. So, um, not just kudos, uh, let, let us know too, when that gets set up and, um, be in touch on that. That's pretty amazing. And this actually, I guess is a good transition now. So the reason I wanted to have you on you, I think are, you epitomize like an abundance mindset. You, you're like, you can tell you're, you're always leveling up. And, uh, I want to talk about, um, you're facing and we face in our business, any startup founder really face these huge daunting challenges um, in the day to day and then every week. But then when you're trying to solve big problems, it's, uh, you know, 10 times harder and it's like they can feel insurmountable at times. But can you give us all and give our listeners kind of a background? I mean, tell us about yourself, your background, what got you into this? If there are a couple, two, one, two, three defining moments that have put Augustus right here, right now with what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, well, I, I think that the overarching point is just that, um, like God has opened a lot of doors for me and I'm really grateful, uh, to him for that. And to all the people that have sort of introduced me to, to faith, because I think that, um, optimism and like my abundance mindset, right. Comes from, a. a a faith that I'm trying to, to nurture and grow every day. So that's sort of more of like the overarching thing that's led me to where I am. But practically, um, I went to school at UC Berkeley, um, 
and I'm not one of the crazy ones for whatever that means to some of your listeners. Um, and originally I was studying physics uh, just because I wanted to understand, I wanted to have the option to understand everything. Um, and what I came to find out is that uh, physics is great for understanding things at the first principles level, but in really large systems, um, maybe if you do like computational physics, then you can apply that type of stuff. But it, it's more of a lab. Uh, it's more of something that you can use in a lab environment. Um, so I switched my major to data science. Um, and I studied data science at Cal for my last two years. So that's, you know, AI, machine learning, all the buzzword stuff. And the reason why I switched to that is because um, you can apply machine learning, um, you can apply programming and vertical SaaS solutions to any array of industries. Um, and I, I didn't know precisely what I wanted to do, but I wanted to have optionality and I wanted to have impact. So that's what I studied. And um, while I was at school, um, virtually, uh, I moved to Texas because of the pandemic. And um, while I was in Texas, working out at the gym, uh, I happened to meet the biggest water well driller in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, and we sort of just started shooting the breeze talking about, you know, gym stuff. And he brought up to me that um, he was encountering all of these new permitting requirements and reporting requirements for groundwater users, right? So think HOAs, farms, um, corporate campuses, mostly those types. They now, because of the depletion of our aquifers in Texas, the Southwest, the Corn Belt, and we can get into exactly what that means in a little bit. Um, but because the aquifers are running dry, um, governments are requiring reporting of how much people are pumping from the aquifers and they are restricting the amount of water that people can use in an attempt to prevent the total depletion and like ecological and economic collapse of uh, these areas. So he, he brought up this idea that he had, which was to like make the permitting and reporting process easier and to give people that currently have no access to information about their well right? It's like some well in a field with an analog meter that you have to trudge through mud to get to in the status quo. He had the idea to automate the reporting process and give people constant monitoring of their well assets. And um, because he had the expertise in water and I had the expertise in data science and programming, we came together and that's what gave rise to Terraseco. Um, so I think meeting him, meeting Jason, my co-founder, was one seminal moment, um, probably like the biggest and then what has sort of been a more um, trickling uh, change in my life is encountering all of these areas where TerraSecco's product and solution is relevant, right? Like where people have to report to their groundwater sustainability agency. Um, encountering all of the talk about increased restrictions and increased regulation um, has led me to asking questions like, well, sure, maybe we should reduce our consumption so that we don't totally deplete the aquifers, but why aren't we recharging the aquifers more um, so that people can continue to use as much water as they have been routinely? Um, and I just listened to your previous episode about aquifer recharge, and I have some strong feelings about that too. But um, but I've had growing concern as I've worked for TerraSeco about the lack of solutions to producing more water or to capturing more stormwater like you guys are doing at Aquapore. Um, and so I now am focusing on talking a lot about how can we ensure that there is enough water for everybody 
more water for our generation than the previous um, and so on, because most of the conversation about water sustainability is um, just about restrictions, regulations and reducing consumption. Yep. I know. Um, God, that's why um, that's why I wanted to have you on because and, and I want to get right into this. So let's talk about the article you wrote on, on your Substack, And I think it was titled planning for failure. Yeah. And it talks about California because I could not agree with you more that it's almost like it's short sighted. If we're going to sit here and then wring our hands and, you know, yell about conserving water. Um, if we look at even urban conservation measures, LA, every city in LA County could go net zero water and it's not going to have an impact, um, in terms of, any type of meaningful impact of 80% of the water from the Colorado River is used for farming or agriculture. And um, I want to talk more about how you were thinking about that as you wrote it, because I completely agree. It sounds like the plan for California is just to take a bunch of agriculture offline, to basically desertify a million acres of farmland, which then you look at the second and third tier consequences of that, which have huge implications socioeconomically for those communities, obviously, that rely on farming as an industry. And then obviously, California is like the fifth largest producer of food in the world. So talk, just talk more about that. Um, again, I want to link to it in the show notes. I thought it was super compelling what you're talking about. But let's talk about California's plan to... Sure save water (laughs) yeah 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 sure so um the official state water plan um i will i will critique as i did in in the article but i'll also give the devil its due and say there's a handful of measures that they're looking to implement to um increase for it to increase the supply of water right so there's an interest in adding i think fifty thousand acre feet of desalinated water to the uh, utility grid per year. Um, there's the sites reservoir, which will hold a couple million acre feet um, of storage. So that's useful. Um, there's uh, a handful of other things that they're looking to do like that, right? So it's it's good that those exist. And I, I want to acknowledge that there's really important work being done by people in the state government to make those things happen. Now, my criticism starts with like, let's go to the sites reservoir, for example, right? Um, if the state of California has, by 2040, 7 million acre-feet less water in the natural supply per year um, than it currently does, we need to produce 7 million acre-feet more per year, if not more, because I'm not only concerned about human use, I'm also concerned about like environmental restoration and perhaps yeah. even environmental improvement and terraforming. So the Sites Reservoir is going to give multiple million acre feet. Um, and for those that don't know, an acre foot is like 300,000 gallons of water. It's going to give multiple millions of acre feet of water storage to the groundwater table in California. So that sounds great. That sounds like it's going to cover most of the deficit, but it's not. Um, the reason why it's not is because you can't use the entire storage capacity of a reservoir in one year, or it wouldn't be a reservoir at all, right? So there's something that reservoirs have, which is called firm yield. That's the amount of water that you can expect to release from the reservoir on an annual basis without depleting it. Um, And the firm yield of the sites reservoir 
is something like 200,000 acre feet a year. So we've gone from multiple millions to a fraction of that, like a tenth of that, just by acknowledging that we can only use the firm yield from the reservoir. Um, assuming, of course, that the reservoir gets built in time. Right. <laughs> and most of the time, you know, that's not the case. So, so there's this issue. Um, there's then the implications of like the bad infrastructure planning that we have, and, like the slow centralized infrastructure planning that we have. Um, the implications of the site's reservoir taking a long time to get built, the implications of the whole plan not producing enough water is this 500,000 to 1.5 million acres uh, of desertification of, of farmland that the state anticipates. And they, they say this explicitly. Yeah. Um, in addition to that, they also say, I think, 500 million square feet of ornamental turf. So like your lawn has to go. Yeah. Um, and it's like, okay, I can appreciate uh, desert landscaping, but like there's something very symbologically wrong with like killing people's lawns at their house, you know? Um, so, so that aesthetically might be a bad thing. The bigger concern obviously is the million acres of farmland that's going to be desertified. Um, again, they say this explicitly, they're going to cut off water to marginal lands, right? So people that are far from um, rivers and canals, which is like the whole Imperial Valley, for Jeez. example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people in the farther areas of the Central Valley uh, are going to be subject to this. So that's a problem. And if you just think about it in like first order economic terms, I think the agricultural sector of California is worth something like $50 billion. I think there's like 24 million acres of farmland. If you reduce that by like four or 5%, just the first order effects are a loss of like two and a half billion dollars wow. um, in economic activity. And that's not even to say the people that will have to move, that stop going to the diners, that stop going to the movie. Well, nobody goes to the movies, but yeah. you get the point, right? Um, so yep. the the plan that's in place is one that's very Malthusian. It's a scarcity mindset. Um, it's, it's going to be problematic if this is the way that things go, but I'm pretty sure that uh, there are enough solutions and enough people working towards those that it doesn't have to go that way and it, and it won't go that way. Yeah. It's really well put. Um, Kevin, I don't know if you have anything to add and so cut me off at any time, but I want to know from you, like what would be the first thing, the first solution you'd lay on the table, um, to help recharge groundwater and basically change the paradigm for how they want to solve, solve this problem. The first thing you would do yeah yeah sure um there's there's one option um there's there's a whole menu of things to choose from but i, I think one that could be really useful is uh brackish water desalination um so according to the u.s um, geological survey i believe that's the organization there's 310 million acre feet of brackish groundwater just in the Southwest. Wow. Which is, yeah, right? Wow. Um, yeah. So that currently is totally unusable. De facto has no ecological benefit because it's in these artesian aquifers. Um, if all we do with that is, you know, assume that there's a uh, 0.5% recharge naturally from, uh, you know, rainwater, precipitation, surface water into those brackish aquifers where the salt deposits are that make and keep them brackish. Um, then if we use 
you know, 0.5% of that 310 million acre feet. Um, that's like what, uh, one, that's like one and a half million acre feet per year that we could pump up, desalinate, and then pump back into the aquifers to, to the freshwater aquifers yep. to recharge them, right? Um, so we could either recharge them or we could use that water outright to reduce the demand on the freshwater aquifers as is. So this is a really cool avenue because um, there's tons of these little scattered aquifers, uh, brackish aquifers. Um, one individual farmer, if they were interested, could set up one of these decentralized desalination plants um, like the ones from Wa Comet that um, Aaron Mandel is working on. And I'll connect you to him just because he's another one of the hundred people working in water. Um, and, uh, you know, a farmer could become totally autonomous without um, tapping into freshwater resources by desalinating this brackish groundwater or, you know, rural municipal utilities could look into this too. So I, I think that um, even better than decentralized recycling and even better than like huge centralized reservoirs or huge centralized desalination um, or cloud seeding, um, although I'm pretty bullish on that one too. Um, Talk about I, I that think next. The, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think the first step would be brackish groundwater desalination. I like that a lot. Um, okay. So I guess where I want to go with this then, and we could talk about cloud seeding and some other approaches that um, are actually, they're not so far-fetched. But um, what this kind of speaks to me about is we have we have plenty of water, okay? We already have an abundance of water. Now it just sounds like maybe an engineering issue. And I feel like everything is simply an engineering issue. Um, yeah. So... And I have some questions written down here, but I, I prefer the way the conversation's going. We're just kind of having it all out here. But um, I was going to ask then, is it, what's it going to take? Is it policy shift? Is it capital? Is it that, because I feel like technology's there. Am I yeah. wrong? So is, Dude. It, is it just policy shift money? Like, what is it? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm. I'm totally on the same page about it being like an engineering problem. Honestly, I might even push back on that and say like, you know what is an engineering problem? Like an engineering problem is like fusion is like nuclear fusion, right? That's a technology that like isn't quite there that we need to do research on um, and like engineers need to make happen. Yeah. Like water, water is almost a logistics issue more yeah. than it's uh, an engineering one. Or like civil engineering, yes, but it's more just about getting the water that we already have to the place that it needs to go. Um, yep. We don't need to reinvent the wheel and use, you know, science fiction, never before seen technology to make water abundant. Um, it's just about implementing existing solutions, right? So desalination exists, um, and, and I guess this gets into the, the policy question, right? Like desalination, if we if we just had nuclear fission reactors and approval for huge desal projects, then, you know, stormwater capture, cloud seeding, whatever would almost be irrelevant, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, we don't have those things because of just inertia, the, the policy environment, like um, there was a huge um, desalination plant that was supposed to be built in Huntington Beach, California called the Poseidon water plant, I think. Did you hear about that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, it got, uh, maybe it, got, I, I, it got killed, didn't it? 
by the California Coastal Commission. Yeah, okay. exactly. And the reason they cited for blocking it, like mind-boggling, <laughs> they said um, if uh, ocean le- if if sea levels rise four feet, then the uh, dumping site near the um, desalination plant would be contaminating the water that the desalination plant is pumping. <laughs> like, first of all. Dude, right? Like, if if oh sea levels God. rise four feet, California is underwater in many parts. Like, there's way bigger problems um, than that. And also, like, a desalination plant would also treat most of the intake water that was around it. So even if there was contamination of the source supply, it would it would take care. So like bonkers rationale, um, and and just bonkers like policy and bureaucracy is in the way of water abundance insofar as these large-scale infrastructure projects are concerned, right? So would I prefer a world where we could just build these huge plants um, and and legislators would approve of them? Yes. So I I think that changing public opinion and public policy about them um, to make people understand that if we implement this, we don't have to deal with drought and talk about drought, uh, that's really important. Um, My friend Laura London um, she is really interested in this in Los Angeles. Um, you should look her look at her on Twitter. Um, has a lot of good takes on on public policy. Um, yeah. But uh, so the flip side, though, which, which you guys talk about sometimes, is like decentralized water infrastructure, right? So if we have this world where um, bureaucracy is getting in the way of the really big projects then the solution is really small projects that don't need tons of paperwork to get them approved, right? So um, decentralized brackish desal, decentralized recycling, cloud seeding, individual developments using aquapore instead of traditional cement. Like these are the things that you don't need a thousand people to review and sign off on. And and these are the things that I think for that reason um, are going to make water abundant in the next like two decades. Yeah, you're speaking our language. We completely agree with that. We talk about decentralization all the time. Kevin definitely does, um, and and that's sort of like that's part of our model, you know, with what we're doing. Um, one one thing I want to talk about that desal plant that got killed. Is it true that they spent like 150 million dollars in pre feasibility? um before like suddenly they just said so they spent all this money they had it basically mapped out was engineered ready to go and they said nope can't do it yeah dude yeah exactly exactly and i I think a lot of that money wasn't even like the feasibility of the engineering i think it was like ecological impact studies um where they were just trying to say like i promise the brine is not going to kill all of the fish in the vicinity like just begging basically yeah so it was like a hundred million plus dollars just burnt wow. because um you know the the california coastal commission jumped in there that's rough yeah dude right yeah so so tell me um the thoughts from both of you the thoughts that, that each of you have on like decentralized water infra and like you know either aquapores role to play in that or just like the general trajectory of decentralized infra because um, you know, we've had like one conversation before this, Greg. So I'd, I'd like to get more in your head to know more about like what you're thinking. For sure. Um, I have some thoughts, but I'm stealing all the airwaves here. So, yeah, you know, one yeah. thing when we talk about infrastructure uh, innovation here in the next coming decades, it needs to be flexible. And so 
the nice thing about our opportunity is modernizing the sidewalks gives an HOA, a municipality, or anywhere in between the opportunity to pocket this infrastructure in a decentralized system. And so we're talking about smaller projects all the way up to larger projects. You know, we see flexibility there. The other thing too is building centralized systems in the face of a changing climate becomes really difficult to mathematically put together these equations to say this will work in the next 50, 70, 100 years. So we see issues with that. And again, we hit decentralization as much as we can uh, because we feel you know that's where the most opportunity uh, comes with regards to recycling stormwater. Yeah, and, and I would even say that I, it cut me off if this starts to not make any sense. <laughs> But I think decentralized water infrastructure within centralized infrastructure, and here's where I'm going with that. Um, here's one example, and this is something that we're working on, kind of developing. But think about this: most, and even if it's a separated stormwater system or a combined sewer system, um, water infrastructure in our cities is basically configured to collect treat and then discharge that water. And when it discharges that water, it's going into Santa Monica Bay, even even if it's clean, or it's going into the Spokane River, um, or pick your body of water where and and so that's contributing to aquifer depletion. Because what if and so what I'm getting at is what if you had a way to redistribute that water to freshwater supplies or aquifers that needed it the most. And the thing is, the infrastructure and the piping grid is already in place to do that. And so um, embed super small high pressure pipes within the network and have them run on uh, being fluid communication with each other so that now you are not wasting any of that clean water, uh, that effluent that's going into the Santa Monica Bay. Instead, you're bringing it to name the aquifer or name, you know, the source, the water source that needs it. So um, that's something I've been thinking a lot more about is like, how can we do this simply to where it's just simply engineering? But um, I'm going kind of down that rabbit hole. But I think decentralization is the future exactly for the reason that Kevin, you just said is because, um, you know, we're relying on water infrastructure that relies on Atlas 14 data that like in the Pacific Northwest, (laughs) Our data is from like 1973. Yeah, the yeah. NOAA really, really blew it. <laughs> and so it's like yeah. you get these huge, uh, this extreme weather event, and it's like, oh my gosh, everything uh, is flooded out. And it's like, well, no wonder you sized the system based on data from 1970. Yeah. You know, so yeah. and, and we know too that it's not a one solution fits all approach. You know, we hit on decentralized infrastructure so much because it doesn't really exist as as much as it should. Having said that, it is a myriad. We're all water guys here, right? It's a myriad of solutions that when it's put together, when it's all integrated, then you're really solving problems. And, you know, I love that you said here in the next two decades, I think we really start seeing what solutions float to the top, what solutions become trusted, and then those become established in the 2040s and 2050s. Dude, totally. Um, A lot of stuff just came to mind. So one, just to go from what you said, Greg, back to what you said, Kevin, um, 
I think that if you so so that like aesthetics of using recycled water and like gray water, um, some people take issue with it. Largely, it's silly, right? Like it doesn't have to become potable again um, to be useful either for irrigation or something. If you had um, these like high pressure small pipes installed across the grid and then used um, the excess from them for like recharge um, within a city, like within metropolitan limits that would be incredible um in part because like you know the whole flood mar thing that california is doing dude generally you, you got to fill us in i i've heard i've heard of it but fill us in okay yeah so um in your previous episode which anybody listening now should go listen to you talk about uh, i think it's like the tahunga yeah valley project or something like yeah. that yeah right so so a bunch of people realized if we just spill water over a hundred acres and just flood it and make it a swamp that's useless and not even necessarily like ecologically uh, like indigenous, like it's not an indigenous environment to the area. Right. Some of that water will gradually percolate into the aquifer beneath it, which is like crazy because why are we using a hundred acres of what could be productive land or even, or even just like native ecologically indigenous environment um i don't know if that made yeah just like normal environmental land. yeah it, just preservation why, why are we taking 100 acres and turning it into uh, a swamp when we could make it a preserve or a farm or something like this um when what we could do is just use that flood water or use that excess gray water and a recharge well and pump it directly into the aquifer with like a five square foot footprint instead of a hundred acre one right um so I, I i'm extremely interested in talking to you more about the uh idea that you have about like doing recharge in a city limit um that would be really cool uh and oh yeah so and and flood mar is ridiculous we shouldn't do that um i mean maybe we should I, i'm open to a lot of different solutions but like part of it part of what rubs me the wrong way about it is like the symbology of it is so twisted in that, like you mentioned, in the last century, all of these you know civil engineers were trying to hold water back to prevent flooding so that like humans could flourish in an area and establish homes and farms um, and sort of like it just just thrive, right? Like we we held floods back for the sake of human productivity and welfare, and now we are in the next century doing the opposite and making land inaccessible to people <laughs> yeah. for some amounts of flow. And we don't even really know because like hydrological models are so iffy. We don't know how much recharge we get from these projects. All that we really know is that we've dumped a bunch of water across land uh, like, and made a mess. So um, I would love to talk to you more after this about um, like metropolitan recharge projects with excess water. And then um, regarding like a single HOA using Aquapore for their sidewalk, um, Kev, um, that I think would be something that new developers would go crazy for, um, particularly in Texas and California and Arizona, because right now when you're building a development, right, um, and you have some common area that's going to be irrigated or maybe some pond or fountain that's going to use groundwater, you have to submit a permit application for 
the amount of groundwater that you need to use, right? So for, for your annual allotment, you need to submit a permit application. Um, if you can prove that by using aquapore for your sidewalks, you're causing X amount of recharge to the aquifer beneath where you are, you can get X amount back in your allocation for productive use. Um, and, and I know a ton of developers that would want to use something like that. It's um, a big deal. Yeah, that would be huge. Yeah. Um, man, this is, I know we're going to have to have a second and a third and a fourth, like follow up, cool. uh, not just conversation. We're going to get, we, we might just have to have you on every week. Just too, much, <laughs> just too much, too much to talk about. Uh, but I, I want to switch gears real quick. Um, and I yeah. want to talk about mindset because I think this is super important. Uh, it, it, especially in this day and age, um, I mean, we're no strangers to it. If you're on Twitter, if you're on social media, you know, you look at the news, there's so much doom and gloom out there. So, but you seem to maintain this abundance mindset um, through it all, through all the noise. How do you maintain this moonshot mindset? And I think this is important for, we have a lot of listeners who, um, they, you know, they're starting companies, they're, they're trying to do difficult things. How do you maintain that mindset? Yeah, totally. Um, it's a. Uh, it it would be we live in a better world if everybody had a mindset like this. So, um, to the extent that I can, I don't know, share how to foster one for yourself. Um, I'd I'd definitely like to now and going forward. So, the 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 first thing again that I'll say, like, which maybe will resonate with some people, maybe won't for others, is like a faith in God, right? Um, I am Christian personally. Like on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. This is like to do with salvation and not like water particularly, right? But like the idea there is that like God's plan, um, if we have faith in it, will act out for our well-being and like the ultimate good of everybody, the universe, this sort of stuff. So not not to get needlessly spiritual hope. or theological. Hope. Yeah, hope. Hope. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So like faith in God, hope for the future. Um I get my hope for the future in part from my faith in God. So there, there's that for one. Um, the second thing is um, it's just like being surrounded by other people that have a similar disposition, right? Um, this is maybe trite advice, but just the the energy that you get or are or the energy that you receive or have taken from you by those around you definitely um, matters. Like the startup community is by far the most like energetic and um, inspirational community of people that I've ever been a part of. So if, if that is something that interests any of your listeners, I encourage you to work at a startup or start a company because you get to meet people like Greg and Kevin and have really cool conversations with them. So, so that's another thing that I think um, that I think matters a lot. Um, and then the last two like small things that I'll say is one, um, if you focus on like, production rather than consumption um, of media, whether it's on Twitter or Substack or a podcast or something, um, and you cater your information diet towards like producing ideas of your own rather than consuming them, um, you're just naturally going to have less intake of the doom and gloom that does get put out there. Um, and you can sort of create the narrative for yourself um, about what you truly believe and about how we can get to a place of abundance despite what everyone says. And then fourthly and lastly, just like go to the gym. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, all, if you just, yeah. Yeah. 
Terraseco started at the gym and it wouldn't exist now without the gym. So definitely lift heavy, lift heavy circles. That's so funny. Our, one of our uh, chief scientists, I uh, went and worked out with him for about a year and a half. We ended up having these wild conversations about water where the rest of the gym would come up and be like, what are you guys talking about? You know, we don't understand <laughs> it, but you sure are passionate. So yeah. Yeah. Second dude. that. Very yeah, similar yeah. roots. Yeah. Um, oh, that is so awesome. Everything you said tracks, 100% tracks. Um, but you lift heavy, man. I don't think, see, I have a hip, a left hip issue, so I can't be doing deadlifts and all that. But uh, what, uh, where are you at with that? I mean, I see you doing like four foot box jumps and like, <laughs> like you're getting after it. So uh, talk, yeah, talk to thanks, us about dude. that. Yeah. Thanks. Well, let's uh let, let's talk about your your hip off the record too to see what we can we can do for that. Um but uh yeah, no, I I've actually um lost a good deal of strength since uh transitioning my focus from like li- literally my number one priority for a while was just lifting. Um which if you don't know what to do with your time in your life, another solid place to start is is lifting. Um so I've gotten a little bit weaker, but um but right now, I think that my deadlift is at like 425 for one. Um, my bench is at like 275 for one. And uh, my squat, I can still, thank goodness, do 405 for one. Um, wow. Yeah. That's power. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's um, the problem with it, though, is I've developed this like horrific caffeine addiction from all the pre-workout that I take <laughs> to make it happen, you know? Yeah. Um, that's awesome. So. I, I uh, again, that tracks. I couldn't uh, mentally. I just and emotionally, I would not be the same person if I didn't work out. Pretty, pretty yeah. religiously. What so. do, What do you guys? What do both of you do for for exercise? Well, he's a hooper. We're both basketball guys, and I've known Kevin since we were both young. You know, and he's he's younger than I am. But that's how we met. Was really through basketball, and he's good friends with my brother. So that's where it started. But uh, then injury, I mean, I played small college basketball and was chasing the dream and just, you know, it was hard on my body. And so I've had this hip issue and now I still do, um, you know, like some hit training and stuff. I try to do one day a week heavy, but my heavy would be very light for you. And then uh, I've gotten into boxing. I've been doing a bunch of boxing workouts. So that's been kind of my new thing. But yeah. Just try to do something every day, moving vigorously. Greg's being modest. His senior year, at one point, he led the NAIA in assists. So he could play, definitely. Um, I was a distributor. Yeah, he was He was the point guard. <laughs> he was the point guard, and he still is. Um, I, uh, I've been running lately. I find uh, you know that runner's high is just a beautiful thing to get in your own space and uh, release you know, the tension of, of, uh, your work day and, and your work week. Uh, I'm still playing hoops a little bit, trying to find tournaments to play here and there. And then I lift occasionally, um, not, not super heavy. I could probably, uh, uh, learn a thing or two out of your book, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's important to stay active, uh, stay physical and, and keep your mind fresh. Yeah, totally dude. It's, um, it's funny running, uh, have you ever heard of like a, BDNF brain derived neurotrophic factor. Um, so it's, it's like, it's what causes neurogenesis in like a very simplified 
sense. Um, so like new, new neurons, new connections or whatever. Once you're an adult, the only serious way to produce more BDNF is by running. Um, like the, the only way to do that into, uh, I don't know, like time pass when you're 25 is, is to run. So that's cool. I wish that I, I will, I will start doing that more. I'm not going to complain and say like, oh, I should, yeah, I, I will, I'll yeah. start running more. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's funny too. You guys mentioned playing basketball. Like I found my box jump does not translate to my actual vertical like at all you know <laughs> like i can barely go for a jump shot still in spite of that i think because of the mechanics of like lifting your hips up versus like actually going up but yeah no it's different it's definitely different um now this is this is fun speaking of runners brennan who's in here how many consecutive days um it's been five years Five years, every day for five years, he's run. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, well, we're way off topic and we don't have that much longer. I know you're a busy guy, but one thing I want to do too is uh, I loved what you did yesterday when you kind of asked your followers and, and the people um, that we follow on tri- Twitter is like, what are some questions um, you would have for this conversation or some topics we should talk about. Did anything jump out at you? Is there anything you think we should address there? Yeah. Um, there was, there was one question that I think, uh, was, was really valuable from, uh, Laura London, who I mentioned previously and, and a friend, um, John, uh, for, for Meyer force force Meyer. I, I've never pronounced his last name before. He's just part of the Twitter verse to me. Um, but, uh, it was about, um, efficiency improvements for farmers, um, like what they could do to improve and whether we've already like maxed out the 80, 20 rule for, for efficiency upgrades. Um, meaning like, have we done everything that can be reasonably expected of farmers? Um, and like any more efficiency would just be not worth the time. Um, so in response to that, what I'll say is, uh, drip irrigation, will make a huge difference um, for the water table because uh, I, I think that you can reduce the, depending on the crop, right? Like not everybody can do this, but um, you can reduce the irrigation demand for a large scale farm by like 80% or more um, with drip irrigation, which um, if of the 38 million acre feet California uses each year, um, 80% of that goes to irrigation on an average year um you know like doesn't take a lot of math to realize that uh you can reduce consumption by tens of millions of acre feet by implementing drip irrigation amazing um yeah yeah so that would be huge the the drawback though is you know it's a it's an infrastructure overhaul at the end of the day right like why do people why are there so few water guys right like why is our infrastructure so old um Nobody cares about this stuff. Nobody wants to deal with permitting and logistics. Um, it's not as fashionable as being in finance or Web3 or Gen AI now or something like that. So um, it's a crazy like, paradox, isn't dude, it? Because it's like yeah. it's the most it's the most precious resource in the world. And you're right. It's just like nobody really cares about it until they care about it. Um, I don't know. It's weird. I didn't mean to cut you off. Keep going. 
no no you're good it it is weird man it's um it's tragic i think that like beyond um water food transportation energy education shelter and like maybe defense any industry besides one of those um is kind of just this product of like gluttony and like societal decadence like not to get into that too much but like the financialization of everything is kind of crazy like a lot of people talk about yeah they talk about like green water credits and like okay there is definitely some benefit to those in terms of creating incentive structures that create like you know recharge projects or whatever but also like why are people spending energy on that when we could actually just solve the root problem, which is consumption and production of water? So, um, yeah, drive also drives me nuts. Um, yeah. But tying back to the farming thing, um, barring drip irrigation, um, which like the burden of replacing their irrigation infrastructure should not be on farmers, right? Like, what I'm not going to come finger wag and tell them like, hey, you need to spend tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to like rip up all this piping and replace it and then also like the maintenance of drip irrigation is pretty brutal right now like if you get a little log in there log if you get a little like pebble in there um the whole system becomes useless so mm-hmm. i don't know what the solution is to that yet and that's especially part of why like i don't think the burden should be on them to replace it it should either be a subsidy or the technology should be improved such that um it like economically makes sense for farmers to switch to this. And and I think that um, that's like a good takeaway from our talk too, right? Like if you can create technologies that create financial and economic incentives to make water abundant, um, then you can like launder water abundance through the capitalist system that we have, right? Which is, which is what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And, and you can attach Very IOT important. and, and uh, uh, all sorts of exactly. sensors to, you know, anything within water. And that's exciting. I want to bring the conversation full circle and put you uh, on the hot seat here. You're now the director of water in East Palestine, and you have to make your top two decisions on how you preserve the uh, the aquifer within the next five to 10 years. What are those two things? Okay. I'm going to give you three. Sorry. But, um, uh, well, actually, your question was how to preserve the aquifer. So, like, actually, infrastructure aside, um, if this could happen tomorrow, um, then then there may be a, a situation where then then there would be a situation where we don't even worry about the aquifer a year from now. Um, if we have three things, one um, booms, which are basically like sponges, right? I, I don't even know why they call them that, but if we have sponges. Um, adsorptive sponges cleaning the surface water around East Palestine um, and getting most of the contaminants out of the surface surface water before it percolates down. Um, so, you know, if we can do that in the next couple weeks, uh, that would be a huge vector. Huge. Those are an issue. Booms alone are an issue, though, because they, you know, cover the surface. They scrape the surface. So even if there is more of the contaminant on the surface, you want to get what's immediately below it, too. So setting up um, either... Uh, modular portable desalination carbon or RO systems at the uh, at the surface water locations, right? It's made, it's like one creek basically um, and a pond. But um, if you can set those up at like strategic points, just to pump the water up and then pump it back down without the contaminant in it, that would help um, 
take what the booms can't absorb. And then uh, lastly, if we dig up the soil in the surrounding area from the, um, if we dig up the soil in the surrounding area of the derailment, that'll prevent, um, you know, stormwater from pushing that back down into the, the surface water and eventually then percolating. So um, th those three things, I think, could protect the aquifer if they happened like yesterday. Um, so that, I guess that's that's what I would do. And, you know, I'll also say, um, like, I, I think there are a lot of smart people that also might have alternative, better solutions that I don't know about yet. So I, I won't say definitively, like, that's it. But um, if, if there are any any people that have better ideas than that, like DM me on Twitter. Um, Cause I'd like to talk about those. Yeah. That's Ooh. awesome. Really well stated. I'm, I'm going through some of the questions uh, here. I see John's question about irrigation. One thing, uh, and not to switch subject back to that one thing I would add, and I, I kind of talked about this um, a couple weeks ago was uh, soil amendments. And I think there's been a lot of research done on biochar and it's showing amazing uh, results. The problem is there's just not a lot of char being produced right now, biochar at least. Well, we come to find out, we, we started researching this more. Um, it looks like coal char has shown even better results. And I just came across a paper uh, from India where they're seeing like amazing results in terms of uh, moisture retention, um, the pro proliferation of microbes in the soils, um, it, it can help improve, uh, fertilizer yields. And so things of this nature that I think are really interesting that could be paired with an irrigation system. And I will point out, um, I want to, it's not my chest, but I'll beat Matt, Matt's chest. Our, our chief technologist is working on, um, a solution for this. And so what's interesting is our concrete technology is catalytic, um, it's permeable and there's huge surface area throughout the material. And so if you get this in a situation or in a process where you can actually, um, they wouldn't be bricks. I mean, you would literally, you know, break them up and size them. Um, that could be a soil amendment. So that's something that we're kind of looking at um, to John's question. Um, yeah. And then I see Laura's question too. She okay. I see what you're saying. So she asked, at what point is efficiency limited uh, in meeting the needs of farmers? So I think you addressed that. But um, yeah, what else? What, I feel like round two needs to be about. Uh, we can get much deeper. I think into some yeah. of these issues, dude. I uh, I would like that. I also um, would like to see that uh, Indian paper um, on on biochar and soil because that. That would be really cool too. Um, again, thinking about like the permitted allocations of farmers in California and Texas, um, if they could get higher allocations because I don't know, or, or if they need, I guess in this case it'd be like needing less water. Um, I don't know. That would be very helpful. So, so please send me that. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that I would like to talk about cloud seeding, but I, I have something at four thirty. Um, so I got to, uh, jump to that. I yeah. Think. Yeah. You, you bet. So I take it you're in Dallas right now or in Texas. I'm in Texas right okay. now. Yep. Right on. We will do this again. Uh, everyone find him, find Augustus. He's the water bro at you're on Twitter, a Dorico. Okay. Right. Uh, yep. capital a D O R I C K O. 
Um, look them up there. We'll put all these in the show notes. I feel like people need to read your Substack. We'll do this again soon. Cool, dude. Yeah, let's let's definitely do that. And um, sometime in May or June, um, I'll come up to Spokane and we can toss some weight around. I would love that. Yeah, yeah let us know. We, we okay. will definitely we'll cool, toss guys. some weight weight around. We'll yeah, we'll run around. We'll we'll make you want to move to Spokane. How about that? Cool, cool. Yeah. All, All right. right. Sounds good, fellas. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Appreciate you. Take care.